Hello, and welcome to this book club with authors Sasha Ayad and Stella O'Malley for When Kids Say They're Trans. And I thank you very much for both sending me a copy of this because unfortunately it's become a real zeitgeist issue in the last few years and there are close friends of mine as well as thousands of parents, families and children that are suffering from their relatives and loved ones falling prey to this particular ideology. So I found this book Took a really compassionate and instructive approach. Um, so thank you very much for sending that in and cheers for sparing the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for having us. So before I, I dive into the sort of deeper reading bit, I just thought it would be helpful to, if both of you wouldn't mind, explain a bit of your respective backgrounds, what led you to or meet each other, collaborate on this book. Why, why this, why now? Okay, I guess I'll start. Um, I, I have been uh, practicing in the, in the field of therapy since about 2008. And I worked with um, domestic violence and sexual abuse victims for some time. I worked with children on the autism spectrum for many years and adults with intellectual disabilities, developing a counseling program there. So I had kind of a broad range of work experiences, but I had always been interested in the way um, society and group behavior impacts individual behavior. This was kind of a thread throughout my undergraduate and graduate studies. And um, in 2014, I started working in a middle school. And I noticed concurrently at the same time, these interesting news and media pieces about something called the transgender child, which was a new concept. I had not been trained in graduate school, for example, to know about a transgender child. So this seemed like a new concept, even though gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder had been around for some time. And at the same time, the students that I was working with, even in 2015 and uh, early 2016, after a significant amount of time knowing them, were out of the blue, a few of them announcing that they didn't want to be girls anymore or that they had a new identity. And uh, long story short, I just noticed that this cultural trend that I was seeing in media was being mirrored amongst the student population that I was working with, albeit in small numbers. But I started to follow these online accounts from parents that I found particularly shocking because they were reporting that after their child suddenly announced a new identity and started feeling kind of uncomfortable with their biological sex, they were taking them to therapists that were recommending to literally affirm the gender and actually sometimes pushing them and kind of using uh, undue stress and threats of suicide to encourage medicalization as almost the first line of treatment. And I found that to be absolutely shocking. And I started looking into the data and found that there wasn't any to support such a you know, pathway for treatment. And I just dove into this world, which largely existed on the internet at the time, and started sharing my opinion and writing a few pieces and connected with Stella O'Malley, which I'm sure she'll tell you more about her film. Um, found her to be quite an amazing voice in this world. And we ended up crossing paths and just beginning to talk all the time and work all the time. And we, we since have started a podcast together. We have a consulting company that helps parents navigate this complicated world. And of course, we've co-written a book along with our colleague, Lisa Marciano. So that, that's a brief version of my story. And uh, thank you, Sasha. And I had a very different path as far as I, I had a very intense experience as a child. I um, experienced what would now be called gender dysphoria for many years, kind of as far back as I go, but kind of like about three. 
and it was for years and years i wanted to be a boy i was sure i should be a boy that life wasn't correct that i was a girl it just didn't make sense to me in my my childlike understanding i now know i had what would be called a very typical case of childhood onset gender dysphoria and that a small number of children have kind of consistently had this and um, usually the statistics suggest that the vast majority of those children grow up to be gay or lesbian or bisexual. And um, I grew up and puberty was very difficult for me, very harrowing. And yet it was the process that pulled me out of my gender distress. And it took years. It took some time. It, it wasn't a quick process and it was a very lonely process. And so I was completely left to my own devices because I was born years ago. And this is, you know, a kid in, her, in the 1980s. It was in Dublin. Nobody was talking anything about trans or anything like that. It just wasn't coming up. Certainly weren't talking about pronouns back then. And then off I went in, into my life. I became a psychotherapist in my, in my early 30s and was, you know, working away, writing books about mental health. Had nothing to do with gender. Was noticing it vaguely in the media. And every time it came up, I'd always think of my own experience and realize there, but for the grace of God, go I. And so far as other people, I could see why people would get caught up in this and that's the direction they would go. I always had a kind of an understanding that I could see why people would take that path. So I think I had a very, in a way, a very biased, but also a very profound understanding of gender distress. And then I noticed again, like no more than yourself, Connor, Gender was just coming up in the media, was coming up in the media. And I kept on saying to my husband and my sister, I must write about this. I had my own experience. I often wrote for the newspapers at the time, the National Museum in Ireland. And uh, so then I did in 2017, I wrote an article, which wasn't that unusual for me. I often wrote about different things, just about gender and my own experience and how um, it was for me. From that, I was invited to do a film, which was the premise of the film was, could any of this 4,000% rise in girls seeking medical transition could any of them be like me and move beyond it through a process of puberty and a sexual awakening and um we were called transphobic for the film it was a baptism of fire it was a shocking year of my life 2018 i'll never forget it where i went from knowing nothing i wasn't even on twitter well i was on twitter but i was one of those hello twitter <laughs> and then i didn't do it years you know i really didn't know the world Somewhere in the midst of that whole year, I started probably following a couple of people. Certainly by the end of the year, when the film came out in November, somewhere along the way, I found Sasha on Facebook. I wasn't on Twitter, so it was all Facebook at that stage. And Lisa Marciano. And I was so impressed with how Sasha had such a really compassionate and deep understanding of what was going on for these kids. And it re she really became a shining light for me of understanding you can work with these kids. Of course you can work with them. And the parents are, are being absolutely dismissed from the story. Roll on now. We, we, we've both, as, as Sasha said, we've got our podcast, Gender Wider Lands, and we have our fingers in many pies. I'm the director of GenSpect, and we run a lot of different initiatives to help a range of different people who've been hurt such as parents, such as children who have medically transitioned before they were able to really give informed consent and are now detransitioners. There's so many people who have been impacted by it. And this book that we've written with Lisa Marciano is kind of a gift to the parents because the, there's an awful lot of it, literature out there for parents who want to affirm, who want to fast track their kid onto a medical route. There isn't much for parents that are saying, hang on, I think there's more going on for my kid. 
I want to really understand what's going on here. My kid seems very distressed. You know, massive percentage of these, well, I shouldn't say massive, but a very high percentage are neurodiverse or have other issues. It might be autism, it might be OCD, it might be anxiety, but many of them do. They're vulnerable kids and their parents are in anguish of. And the book is for the parents to help them navigate their own individual child in a way that we hope our book will be like their, their go-to about handling various different issues that might arise. I think the, both, of, both of your immediate experience, your grounding in this debate before you decided to set up the podcast and, and write the book, uh, that bleeds through with a very compassionate framing. I mean, I said this off air to, to Sasha uh, that I ran some of the passages <coughs> past the, the sister that I'm, I'm quite close with. And she said lots of it resonated, particularly the bit about how puberty blockers can induce a stage of solipsistic arrested development. And at once, gender and sexuality discussions are very focused on conversations about sex and relationships, but it can make you, it can render you asexual, both sterile and in interest for life. And she was like, wow, I've never had it put like that before to me. So I, I think this is really important framing, not just for the parents, but probably the people that have been through this stuff that, that need to hear it. So co- commendations on that. So I, I suppose we may as well dive into, the, dive into some of the details. You led with Lisa Lippmann's paper, Groundbreaking, about rapid onset gender dysphoria to describe the 4,400% increase. I mean, that's what we've seen in the UK. In young girls specifically, hopping onto gender dysphoria as a, as a trend because the caseloads before about 2014, before the rise of Tumblr, before the rise of social media were young boys, perhaps confused by osteogonophilia, perhaps same-sex attracted. And so the population is affected is completely inverted. And just the number of people it's affected has exploded. I saw the New York Times report, I think it was earlier this year, about 300,000 American teens that have now said they identify as some nondescript, non-straight, cis, whatever, gender identity. So what are the dangers of the gender affirmative model? And where has this rapid onset gender dysphoria come from? I know it's a bit of a broad question, but... (laughs) Yeah, I think that's two questions, I would say. One thing that we may want to start with is just what is a social contagion? Because Mm -hmm. this word is bandied about, and I think in some ways, on the surface, it seems as though um, the word trend is definitely appropriate, but there's something much deeper going on, which is when a young person is distressed, as many are during puberty at a time when maybe they lose their friendship group for whatever reason, their family just moved across the country. I mean, any number of reasons can create distress in adolescence, maybe just adolescence itself. You know, young people and and all people look around the world to try and understand what their distress means and how to identify and understand it. And if it's very nebulous, such as growing up is hard, right? That's probably the fact of it in many cases. That is really hard to deal with because what do you do about growing up is hard? There's nothing concrete that you could do. You just have to wait it out and suffer through the pain. And with social contagions, what happens is a particular diagnosis or explanation of symptoms that ends up in the culture. And then it starts to make the distress a little bit more concrete and manageable after, as you mentioned, Dr. Lippmann's study shows, and I can attest to this from working with young people, hours and hours and hours of reading about gender identity online, reading about what gender dysphoria is, and little nuggets of truth from those diagnostic categories and those definitions will start to make sense. You know, for example, 
Have you ever felt uncomfortable with the growth of your breast as a teenage girl? Of course, yes, yes. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, that might be gender dysphoria. And then you read a little bit more and a little bit more. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in with other girls? Oh, definitely, yes. What does that mean? So it's actually very understandable how this social contagion emerges. And I'm, I'm sure Stella has a lot to add to this, but the problem with the gender affirmative model is that it completely discounts not only the ideology of where the gender dysphoria came from, if perhaps it was kind of like self-groomed through these obsessions with gender identity, but it also neglects to, to inform patients that we actually don't have any evidence that if you land on gender dysphoria, wherever it came from, the transition is going to help you. In fact, even from the older populations that you described earlier, Connor, we don't have a lot of evidence that gender dysphoria is really well managed and treated by transition. That is kind of a myth that a lot of older transgender people can even attest to. Like, actually, no, this was not the panacea I was sold, even back, you know, a few decades ago when I transitioned. So there are so many problems with the gender affirming model, but I just think it's important for people to understand how the social contagion kind of works on the ground level because sometimes it is used in a way to be a little dismissive of these young people who are genuinely suffering and who really have come to believe that this is the answer for them. And could I add a couple of points there because I, I so agree with you, Sasha. You know, we often forget one of the most known um, issues around social contagion is suicide, which is devastating. And it's something that there's an awful lot of safeguards in around so that a social contagion doesn't happen in the community because it's so well recognized that it, it could happen. We should never undermine a social contagion as if it's somehow not as impactful as something that isn't uh, kind of born from social contagion. But um, a couple of things, when you affirm somebody without also adding a kind of a more depth of perspective, you're effectively affirming that there's something wrong with them that needs to be medically attended to. And arguably that's a very, very destructive move for some people. So I think while it's important in a way to affirm somebody as in you don't negate them, certainly colluding with something, somebody. Imagine, for example, I wouldn't affirm somebody who came into me and told me that there was something wrong with their body and they needed medical attention. I'd have that neutral space with them that they, you know, if they feel that there's something wrong with their body, well, let's discuss it. But I wouldn't necessarily say, yes, there's something wrong with your body and you need medical attention to fix it. Because that's actually taking authority away from the, the person in front of you and almost giving it an imprimatur from uh, a trained professional who has a position of authority. And the, the, so that's that's one thing I like to raise. And the second thing is puberty blockers in and of themselves, they stop sexual development. And we don't know what is the stopping sexual development. Children are supposed to be going at all points. They're supposed to be developing at all points. We've never before decided for emotional reasons to stop physical development. And so when sexual development is stopped, that ache, for, to fall in love that so many of us went through during our teenage years and we listened to songs and we had crushes and we almost had fake relationships in our mind with different people as we were practicing effectively marriage and love and relationships 
we also, if you're anything like me, we upskilled because we realized for somebody to fall in love with me, I <laughs> bit more attractive in my personality so I went from being a very self I'm doing my own thing I don't care about anybody else to a, a, a dawning realization of well I need to be attractive to those people that I was insanely crushing on and uh, to do that I want to put my best foot forward and just telling everybody to kind of get out of my way I'm doing my own thing that left me well to an extent <laughs> and instead I became more socially interested and this is all happening in a, an adolescence now if you stop that sexual development the, the ache for a mate the yearning to connect with another mm -hmm. human being is stopped if, we don't know what we're doing there these are huge interventions it's not just stopping sexual development and by the way that's a massive intervention because every other one of the peers at different rates and different speeds are starting to have a sexual awakening. These are remaining in a childlike state, in a very solipsistic, like you said, solipsistic arrested development is a very powerful phrase you used. And also they are not beginning that kind of lifelong search for a mate that the vast majority of us have. It's huge. Yeah. I'd like to just add on to something I've recognized from just speaking with other people about my work is that many, many concerned and reasonable citizens actually have no idea that putting a child on puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones will render them sterile permanently. And that is not reversible. And they will not be able to have a normal sexual function. So in addition to the kind of social emotional aspects that Stella's raising, they won't be able to achieve orgasm. Sometimes they will have serious dysfunction with their reproductive organs. They can develop osteoporosis at a very young age because their bone density is impacted. And there's even some, you know, very minor evidence about cognitive impairments. So we are stopping development on a biological and psychological level, which has an impact on their social life and their sense of you know, identity development. So we have never done anything like this before. And when you look at, we may talk about this later, but when you look at the European countries who have done systematic reviews of the evidence in recent years, they have found that the, the evidence and the quality of evidence is very, very low. And there isn't any good data to support these risky practices. So psychological support as the first line of treatment has emerged from all of the countries that have been looking at the evidence more closely. So affirming care which just is a yes, 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 give the children the medicines they want. There's really no evidence to support this being a good idea. And the risks we do know about in this very young field are much too high to justify that treatment. Yeah, with many other disorders, you would lose your license were you to affirm, and it's a harsh word to put, but the <clears throat> delusions of someone who is in the state of mental illness, if you would turn around to someone who has anorexia and say, actually, yeah, you are morbidly obese, here's mm -hmm. liposuction, you would mm -hmm. rightfully mm -hmm. have your license stripped away from you. So I think there was, a, there was a passage in here where you almost explicitly said, we don't confirm the framing of someone who is suicidal, because unless you're the Canadian healthcare system, we don't want them to kill themselves. So that, that just seems like a bad idea all around. So mm -hmm. if the goal is to actually treat these people and provide them with a healthy, happy, functioning adult life in their bodies, and particularly because 
puberty is a stage of embodiment where you come to understand yourself, then to let them go through it would be a very sensible thing. And, and the point that, that you made, Stella, about the period of romantic development that sort of broadens your horizons to the social world and makes you more considerate of others, this is something that my, my friend Richie Heron was tweeting about the other day, and we, we had a little exchange about it. And he actually highlighted the fact that even if you aren't medicalized, if you are a desister and you step away from it, you don't forget that period where you had that identity that made you lose track with development with your peers. And so even if you aren't sterilized by medicine, mm -hmm. your behaviors might leave you functionally sterilized in that you carry around a lot of guilt, you have lingering identity issues, you might not be able to connect with people in such a way where you can maintain a romantic relationship and eventually have the children that you're still physically capable of having. So the ideology itself renders you bereaved of the ability to have a family. So I think it's just just absolutely awful to do that. So I, I, maybe maybe that might be a good detour to go down then when you said about the, the dangers of puberty blockers and the lack of evidence. Um, for those that don't know, that might be a, might be a good route to go down because you, you go into the Dutch protocol and, and the scant evidence basis for that. Do you mind, uh, do you mind kicking off with that? Well, the Dutch study was 70 uh, children over the course of a number of years, and they were picked because they were in good mental health and uh, they had gender dysphoria from childhood. And, um, you know, it's, it's for, for it is the study from which puberty blockers as an experiment has kind of spread across the world. It began really in the Amsterdam clinic. And um, these 70 children, they ended up being 55 children. Um, it was kind of, you know, the same, same cohort, but they, the 15 of them dropped out. Some of those dropped out because of heart complications, diabetes, obesity. One tragically died out of this 70. And I always think of the COVID vaccines and had they done a study on 70 children, and one had died, that would have been the end of the, the study. That's it. One child has died, and you know, now we will stop the study and we'll go to less aggressive treatments. When I say one child died, he, he, he had gone through puberty blockers, he was on cross-sex hormones, and he had an operation, a genital surgery operation, which is part of the Dutch protocol, part of the study. And he died as a result of the complications that he had uh, that he you know that came about because of this surgery. So um, from that, the results they're 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 messy and they're complicated. One key point is they make an awful lot of the fact that the children of these seventy who ended up becoming cross-sex, um, you know, they ended up being medically conditioned adults. But when they were asked, "Has your gender dysphoria reduced?" It was a sex-based study, so. If you were born, let's say, uh, a boy and you were given the study, it's complicated, but it's worth knowing about this. So if you were given the study at 12 before you went on puberty blockers, do you like being a boy? Do you like urinating, standing up? Do you like having erections? These boys didn't like their bodies, so they would have said no, 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 no. And then they went through all these interventions. And then they were giving a study for girls. Do you like being perceived as a girl? Do you like other people perceiving you as a girl? Do you like doing things that are related to girl, stereotypical girl behaviors? And they would have answered yes, yes, yes. But they would have answered that without any intervention. So it was, it was a crazy kind of, oh yes, their gender dysphoria is relieved. And it's like, well, you, you gave them two different questionnaires. And one was 
you know, completely the opposite of the other. So for a study, I'd be very interested in what Sasha has got to say about it, but for a study, it looks to me like a shoddy, pretty uh, lack of scholarship, very unimpressive study. And it's stunning that puberty blockers as a treatment have rolled out as a result of this study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, I, I myself am not a statistical analysis researcher, but for those researchers who do have the qualifications and have looked at this study, you know, big um, bodies that professionally evaluate research and its, you know, uh, applicability to the population, they've all said that this is a terrible study. It's very low quality evidence. And I mean, something that is a bit of a tangent, but that I'd like to point out is that even in the Dutch protocol, which is the kind of first experiment of trying to quote, transition children, one of the really interesting kind of philosophical underpinnings that I notice is that there's a belief that medicine can literally turn you into a different sex person. And, um, you know, the, the surgery that Stella mentioned where the, this male tragically died, he died because of the complication related to puberty blockers specifically, because his development was arrested, his penis did not grow, there was not enough penile tissue to do the, quote, inversion. I mean, it's quite brutal to even think about. And they used colon tissue, which is almost, I mean, to me as a non-surgeon, this is a really Frankensteinian, like, all it needs to be is a tube inside the body, so we can just use any old tissue and make a tube. And you know, what we starting, we're starting to see now from young people who are detransitioning after being this kind of first cohort that it, I believe is being experimented on without the controls of an experiment. So it's even worse than an experiment. A lot of them are reporting, myself and my family were misled to think that the earlier we started, the more likely I could actually become a girl, which is an incredibly negligent, um, piece of misinformation, and I think incredibly destructive to tell a vulnerable family that you can change your child's sex. You cannot. You can aesthetically approximate it with some serious medical and health-related trade-offs, but nobody can change a child's biological sex, no matter how much hormones and surgery they provide. So this is, I, I find to be one of the most um, shocking and horrifying things about how misled families are into thinking that they can actually change their child's sex, which they cannot. One of the, one of the worst things about that as well, and I'm I'm glad you picked up on the sort of Frankensteinian experimental angle of this, is that the study itself was funded by the manufacturers of triptorelin, and then the conference to promote it was also funded by the same pharmaceutical funders. So. It seems to me like a sort of manufacturing consent for the fact that their own product works and then roll it out as the sole solution to a bunch of children's psychological malady. It, it's very cruel. And then you have the angle of where you treat the body as a sort of cosmetic organ mm -hmm. that can then be mm -hmm. chopped and changed and sex itself is opt-in. And then when something goes awry because of an undeveloped technological procedure, as we saw with James S's exposure of the Childline forums, suddenly, oh, it's okay, or, or, or as, as was given to certain people at the Gids Clinic in, in Tavistock, it's okay 
Before you go on this procedure, you can just freeze your eggs or freeze your sperm as a 14-year-old, or you can just get a surrogate later to carry your child if you decide you want one. So we, we're robbing you of your fertility for a tech reason that doesn't work, and then we're solving it with more medical tech that might not work as well. It infuriates me to no end, and I just I think it's frankly sick. Um, looping, looping back around slightly, because you mentioned all the, all the comorbidities that other patients had, and that gender ideology became a kind of linchpin for sense-making for a lot of confused adolescents to say, okay, here's this cohesive narrative of why I'm feeling uh, alienated yeah. from my peer group and why I don't feel quite at odds with myself as I'm going through a, a transition period of change. One of the internal, I think it was the only internal clinical review that Tavistock did well before they adopted the, the Dutch study found that all of their clientele had five to six other mental health comorbidities or, or possible trigger events like family abuse and things like that that were associated with the gender dysphoria. So what should parents be on the lookout as possible proclivities that their children might have that might leave them vulnerable to persuasion by this particular ideology? Um, well, I think that the triad that I see is anxiety, depression, and autism. Those three diagnoses seem to be very common amongst this population. Uh, social isolation is a big risk factor. And I, I think on the other side of that coin, having a peer group of close friends who are all beginning to experiment with their identity labels is certainly another risk factor. So, you know, it, it's, it's so complicated for families, you know, who want their children to have good friends, but are also concerned that their children's friends' ideas and behaviors will impact them. Um, and I think it's impossible to really talk about this honestly without raising the issue of social media and the internet and the screen times, because this is something we see over and over again as being, um, I'll give you an example since we've talked a little bit about COVID, you know, when kids became relegated to their bedrooms and many schools here in the US at least provided them with laptops and they were online all the time. Um, their daily life routines were disrupted. Oftentimes parents were trying to scramble to figure out what to do with this new, you know, complicated life arrangement. And many of them were spending inordinate amounts of time on the internet. And parents will, in hindsight, look at their kid, child's, you know, computer history and find hours and hours of Googling trans things and watching trans YouTube videos and looking at trans Instagram influencers. And so these, um, factors, you know, mental health diagnoses and the kind of social element and the screen time and tech element um, are really important. And I'll add one more thing before I hand it over to Stella. I think sometimes this gender dysphoria is kind of like the identified patient experience, which therapists know about. You know, there may be some family discord, not necessarily extreme abuse, though I'm sure that happens in some cases too. I know in the UK, a lot of kids at the GIDS came from like foster care or um, the services. So that definitely happens. But even if there's some sort of strife within the family, the child's gender dysphoria can end up being almost like a cry for help, that something is not well with us. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.